Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am Technical Director Jack Rossiter-Munley. And before we get into today's episode, I wanted to mention that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. And I'm mentioning that because Cardboard Box Productions is launching a brand new newsletter. And you can go to CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com to sign up. That is CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. In that newsletter, you will get all kinds of behind-the-scenes information about Poetry Spoken Here. You'll also get recommendations for reading and listening and watching, and you'll learn more about some of Cardboard Box Productions' other podcasts, all of which are about literature and poetry and cultural history. There's Close Talking, which is a poetry analysis podcast, and Nothing But the Bruce, which takes the life and work of Bruce Springsteen and looks at its impact, and also much, much more, expanding out into American political and cultural life. So if you like Poetry Spoken here, and any of that sounds interesting, head on over to CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com and sign up for the newsletter. On to the podcast. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is David Cohn. He is in California right now, but he's been a lot of places, like the University of Alaska, Heidelberg. He's taught at Breadloaf in Vermont, and he has edited a book called Compendium, which is Donald Justin's thoughts on prosody, so he knows a lot about that sort of thing. His earlier book, Twine, received the May Sarton Poetry Prize, and he has a new book called Scatterplot, which Jericho Brown said involves him stumbling around in the aisles of dreams. And I, I think, I'm from what I've read, I think I can agree with that. Do you think you stumble in the aisles of dreams, David? I do. Uh, I, when Jericho wrote that, um, it struck me as as he clearly in, intuited uh, what many of the, the poems um, were striving for. Uh, the, the, the connectivity in poetry is by itself rarely linear. Um, even in narrative, it can be magical. And um, in, in most of the work in Scatterplot, there's a, a continuity that's part of discontinuity that's very very accidentally dreamlike um, uh, and reflective of a movement of the way I f- would feel my way through a poem and expose that process, literally expose the process of poem making um, that in some ways uh, uh, was part of the, the, the rule breaking experience of making those poems, which I guess could lend themselves to having a a dreamlike quality and the stumbling part. I can't help but do that. That's just, uh, that's the way I walk. It's the way I talk. It's the way I make poems. So stumbling around in the dark is uh, perhaps the, the baseline. Well, I, th- I think a, the big, a big thing that I got from it, reading it, just being new to your, your work is that uh, you're not afraid to go into the unknown. You're not worried about it. You, I guess, have some faith that something's going to come of it. Yeah, uh, commit to the process. You you commit to the to the what 
the next indicated right thing seems to be in the poem. And um, uh, the faith that the, the poem itself will take you where it wants to go. And to the degree it's possible, I use a variety of arbitrary processes to keep my ego out of the way, um, to keep my intention out of the way, uh, to keep my editorial, you know, to keep my smarts out of the way, to keep my editor on, on lock, to keep him, you know, silent uh -huh. for a while. And um, because the, 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 the pleasure of letting the poem go where uh, it may go on any particular trail and then find another trail and then find another trail. You know, one of the beauties of walking in the wilderness is sometimes saying, this is the trail I intend to take and then finding many other trails and many other ways uh, to explore a piece of landscape that maybe you didn't intend, but have an opportunity to explore. Um, and so writing any one poem in some ways sometimes feels like kind of hiking the backcountry, You're just kind of getting a feel for the weather, the trail, for your body, for uh, your interests. Okay, and you said you have some things you, you do to yeah. keep your ego out of the way. I do. Okay. Well, well, tell us one. This is really interesting. <laughs> Other um, people may want to do this, you know, our listeners, yeah, yeah. a lot of poets listen to this. <laughs> yeah. Some of the, some of the arbitrary processes are things like I will ask a friend to give me um, a list of 17 words. Uh, I'll ask another friend to give me um, a syllabic pattern of, let's say, you know, five different lines of, of syllable length. I'll ask a friend to give me um, uh, six or seven um, uh, locations that they've been to. And then I'll ask uh, another friend to say, you know, use these things to create an assignment for me um, or, or combine those things into an assignment for myself, mm -hmm. like I would give my students. And I give myself all of these strange demands. Um, okay, I have to write a 17 line poem with the pattern of nine, seven, five, four, seven, repeated until I get to the 17th line in terms of syllables. And I have to use these, these, and by paying attention to these grueling constraints, um, by paying attention to these, these trees and colors and rocks and roadmaps, in some ways I'm forcing the smart side of me, the one that has to be mathematical and pay attention to logic is, is just trying to solve this strange problem. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that accidentally all the smart me gets out of the way working on the problem and the process of making just happens over on, while I'm not looking. And I, I look down and see what the exercise or the constraints have produced. And it's often something I could not have imagined. Mm -hmm. I, there's no way I could have predicted where uh, this journey was going to take me until I had simply tried to solve the problem that mm -hmm. ended up producing uh, something that the creative side of me was given permission to do. Oh, that's great. It makes complete sense. Sounds great. I mean, really, that's, that's a good idea. I think there are going to be people doing that. 
<laughs> I'll probably yeah, do it if no one else does. I teach a prosody course uh, yeah. for for um, uh, Omnidon once a year, and uh, we go through you know Donald Justice's compendium. We go through um, his syllabus on prosody, and I give these kinds of assignments for syllabics mm. and accentuals and accentual syllabics and uh, long line free verse and short line free verse and and, and um, it's. It's not. It's typically not an assignment that says write a syllabic poem. It's usually something that's distracting the the poet from thinking about syllables, and then they end up making a syllabic poem. Mm. Uh, yeah. And uh, these kinds of um, this was one of those things that Donald Justice used a lot of was arbitrary processes and and sort of uh -huh. the opportunity. You know, he was he has a great lecture on John Cage about uh, letting the outside in. Um, and sort of not dictating what should or could or, or might not be allowed into a poem. And so these arbitrary processes, whether they be tarot cards or rolling dice or um, randomly picking words um, are just techniques to give us permission. And, and prosody itself is something Donald used to describe as, you know, tapping our fingers to keep the chaos of the universe at bay. Mm. Um, That's so good. This this combination of structure and unstructured experience for me is the heart of of uh, creative process. Well, I'm thinking we should um, hear a poem, and I, I should mention, dear listeners, that um, with my experience of reading David's poems, I think you're probably going to want to later come back and listen to this poem again. Oh my gosh, Charlie! I, you know which one should I read? Oh, I don't know. Do you have the one that I mentioned when we were just chatting with uh, all those various disparate people and in, in it? I do. You know, Mayakovsky and the Velvet Underground, and that's why I'm saying, folks, you may want to listen to this now and appreciate it, but come back and you'll find things you missed for sure. Now, there's no shortage of. Uh of detail in some of these, um, which um, this is a poem called the, the definition of a circle in a world without geometry. <laughs> and uh, if you're patient enough, um, we may actually get through the whole thing with any luck. Whoa. <laughs> Ready? Sure. Okay. The definition of a circle in a world without geometry. The Rykoffs have planted blood-red batface along the edge of the walk. They will get all the hummingbirds and butterflies next year. Push play. Of course, I have to mention how my mind does not want to mention the entire night underscored by Wilco's lines. I'd always thought if I held you tightly, you'd always love me like you did back then. Omits, as Mayakovsky would call her, the target. My son, Bay and I walk past thing one and thing two. How many ballerinas does one expect to see walking the streets this late at night? Death is always on the prowl. The near miss of Rusty by the Home Depot truck in New York City brings the near misses back today. My idea of the soul is a dance party with palm trees wrapped in foil. Dancing is flying and the music always sounds like the first time you heard the talking heads combined with the second time you listened to Velvet Underground's self-titled album all the way through. My third eye takes snaps. 
nods off without warning. But now I am asleep with two eyes open. The hunchback of Notre Dame answers the door of the house at the corner of Harbor Cove and River. The inmate in his prison stripes holds his one-year-old son, also in prison stripes. The scantily clad prison guard swings her billy club. Oh, never to be stuck in commute traffic again. We all learn eventually, quote, don't read the comments, end quote. Minions have taken over the neighborhood, a witch doused in gauze cackles from her corner of the walkway. A skeleton sits on her bench doing its best impression of William Logan, right leg crossed over left, right arm stretched out to the right, skull tilted to 11, chin and right toe pointed to four. A bottle of hand sanitizer, almost empty, cranes its neck over the edge of the second edition unabridged Webster's New International Dictionary, 1958. Paul Manafort walks by, dressed up as a train engineer. The Rykoff family, dressed as the Knights of the Round Table, ring the doorbell of the largest house in the neighborhood. The head of the HOA, a former porn star, shows up at the party as a 2007 IRS tax audit of Jeff Sessions. A guy with a bonfire wheel in his driveway hands out Heineken's. Push stop. The definition of a circle in a world without geometry sources its etymology from the fleeing prisoner, innocent despite all the charges, born in Condé, France, a short drive from the college to Cambrai, where he learned how to love an older woman, where she and her sister took him after, after the school day was over, but time allowed. Never trust the living, said Juno, played by Sylvia Sidney in Beetlejuice. The line, a set of lines, intersecting Sumi lines, outline the idea of the face of a ram. Ink drops like mistakes, like eyes, like the image of planets in a solar system, like orbits, like the beginning moment that determines the weight of a line. Sam Hain, the stray red balloon, the somebody starts something. I dressed as a wolfman, they a wolf boy. We howl because we howl. This is the root of how the moon turns us. The skeleton in the red shawl escorts us to the courtyard. There, in the 18th card, an owl in the tree sees two wolves calling down the partial moon. There, in the distance, the Sierras wait all winter. A mastiff, dressed in a tuxedo, walks by, pauses. Whoa. I told you, folks, a lot of things get mentioned in this poem. <laughs> yeah, it's just really, really, really fun. Timely poem. It's a Halloween poem, of course. Of course. There you go. Yeah. Totally appropriate. Yeah, we're so timely. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to miss that. Another element of pop culture. You can't ignore that. Uh, yeah. You mentioned to me, actually, while we were talking before we got on here, that uh, the detail is the world. I think you, I don't think you were quoting someone. I think you were saying that. Yes. Tell us about that as a follow-up. Sure. And, and so many people have, have talked about this in so many ways. Yeah. You know, John Muir has talked about pull on the string of anything and the universe will reveal itself. Um, you know, any good scientist knows that, um, you know, you know, pick up any object in the world and, 
And as you come to better understand it, it opens up uh, to the material that it's made of and where that was manufactured and how those manufacturing elements came together, which open up physics and open up biology and open up uh, the, the, the atomic space and inside the atomic space is the infinite. But on a more basic level, um, you know, we open up our grandmother's cookbook and it still smells like the cookies that she baked. And that smell takes us back to that kitchen where those cookies were on a tray and we see her hands and we see her in that dress. And that dress has a particular pattern that somebody else uh, has worn recently. And so everything is connected to everything, but it's only connected ultimately by the way our imaginations move. Um, and at the end of all of those strings that we pull, um, you know, is consciousness. It is the mind at motion connecting to the oneness that is uh, unavoidable in our, in our morphology and our cosmology. And you can start anywhere, you know, which is in many, in many cases, my poems do. <laughs> they, <laughs> right. they, they start with, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a post-it note, um, but you know, anything can, can be the, the triggering town from, from Richard Hugo. It can be the triggering moment. Um, and, it, and it doesn't have to be something sacred, you know, or imaginably sacred. It doesn't have to be the leaf on a tree or a beautiful flower. It can be um, Ray Donovan, the TV show. It can be a burnt out light in a storage closet. Um, it could be the Amazon package that arrives at the door. Um, how, did, uh, how did this poem start? Do, the, do you remember? <laughs> I, I do. I do. Okay. Um, it was uh, uh, several Halloweens ago when um, uh, we were walking down the sidewalk and um, uh, um, uh, one of our neighbors walked by dressed as Paul Manafort for Halloween. <laughs> and, and from that moment, the rest of the poem just kind of expanded yeah. from there. And it, of course, like so many things came interwoven with that, which was how can I talk about the political moment without being political, overtly, without being polemic? How can I connect to costume and Samhain and to community and living in the suburbs, but also express something about um, the complexity of owning the problem and being the problem and also the sort of strange joy of Halloween at the same time. <laughs> that that was good uh, to hear a poem like that that's involving and engaging and kind of uh, encompassing, I would say. Um, and why, why don't you read it? If people have sampling of your work, we should hear another one at least, or maybe a couple. I can do a short one, um, which is... Uh, um, so the, the book scatter plot is broken up into these Delta poems and you mm -hmm. heard uh, Delta, Delta 15, the definition of a circle in a world without geometry, um, uh, a Halloween poem uh, mm -hmm. uh, that of course seems to be about Halloween and not about Halloween. Um, yeah. But I also have a, a poem connected to that section called a scatter plot poem, which followed that poem in the book. And this scatter plot poem is called scatter plot essay on granite. Um, and I, in my head, I see them connected, even though they're 
so wildly different in their landscape. Yeah. So this is called Scatterplot's essay on granite. And this is Delta five. Uh, no, this is, so that was right. Delta 15. Yeah, this okay. one, this one's is Delta five. This one is Scatterplot no. essay oh. on granite. Oh, okay. Got it. Essay on granite. I'm sorry. Set the chin, the hearth, the mantle, the rock garden, ground the house in place with us as polished, masoned, beveled, fitted, even the children handmade. Yet, if anything, we share the fingertips, cobbled, peppery sense of granite's composite oneness. The bedrock for the arbor near the sculpture garden, paperweight, glacial medium, Chisler's thread dates because written in stone means someone cared for life near the lake's edge. Jointed scarps make rock climbing seem required. The fixedness of things, power, the reminder that no oppressor, only fluid stone will endure. In this story, someone fell and splattered on the stones of a V-shaped gorge. Hardness just malleable enough to be shaped matters most. Did that poem have any um, of your give yourself assignments component to it? Yeah, I wrote a whole little essay on it that's up at North American Review. Um, and it's it was connected to uh, a quote from, from Donald Justice and um, some thoughts that Ivor Winters had on, on writing, uh, um, verse and uh, that particular poem is in sonnet form um, and it seems to have a regular nearly regular iambic pentameter line and so uh, while it may not be visible when you first look at the poem or audible when it's read there is this slant rhyme uh, in a pattern across the entirety of the poem and it's intended to be um, a tip of the cap to a sonnet. And this kind of formal structure was connected to this idea of climbing um, the face of a, of a granite uh, um, mantle in Yosemite and uh, in that same place uh, where someone had jumped to their death. And so this movement top to bottom in the poem was was part of that exploration um, sort of a more traditional assignment but but uh that essay is up at the north american review and people can happily go look at it i would say that the um the slam rhymes are seriously subtle <laughs> no question that's really yeah enough. you know i'm looking at things like garden and masoned or hardness and most now these are are you know, reminder and endure, you know, these are, are right. a little bit of sound resonance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, stretched that's slant. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Oh, fabulous. Let's hear another poem. I do like, I do, do like conversing, but I don't know, whatever you want to do. Let's see. Which one should we do? You know what? I have a new, new Delta poem, which is connected to the Delta poems in, uh, in, um, in Scatterplot coming out in Gargoyle. Great. And R Richard at Gargoyle has always been kind to me. Um, 
And that also means that he's kindly said no to me for many times over the years. <laughs> yeah. And at long last, he has kindly said yes. Um, and so as a tip of the cap to this sort of lifelong pursuit of publishing in Gargoyle uh, with Richard, I'll read Delta 10. The green plastic fly swatter on the end table looks like a bug. Sound like a deal? Yeah, perfect. All right. Excellent. This is a long one, so strap in. Okay. Delta 10. The green plastic fly swatter on the end table looks like a bug. Down Vasco, just past the peak, off to the west, a stand of windmills guard the edge of the contour where grass meets the cereal cumulus clouds. There, a valley oak, the bulb of canopy and assortment of synapses forms its thought, a series of self-describing APIs. After the game, I drive home alone because we take two cars everywhere we go as a precaution. There are no right answers, only answers that move the conversation forward. And if you don't believe that, there are wrong ones. In the restroom, on a white radish-shaped sconce, the green, gray, black and red housefly waits to do work. Somewhere near there, a woman sets up her Valley of the Dolls. Her doll house overlooks the view of the most fashionable in the favored nation. I make the poem of evil also. I commemorate that part also. At night, when I walk the sidewalk to the ball field, streetlights give enough space for night sky to throw stars. I wish I knew more about constellations, the Chinese name of Orion, or the Russian nomenclature for Ursa Minor. I remember my friend Dave from college. I was his friend, likely his only friend, the first person I met where I could see an internal world different than mine and vast in a way I only saw glimpses of. He was tall, six feet, six inches, and maybe what, 145 pounds? Not even his afro could hide the skeleton wanting to walk out of his body. He would walk here and there and everywhere. And when he felt the need, he would stop by the library and he would chat with me about the collapse conjecture or the hairy ball theorem. The first, a function that when applied reduces any positive integer to one. The second, a proof that no function can produce a flawless sphere. He was gay. He may not have known that yet. <laughs> he may still not know that. Day, my son on one of our walks explained axolotls. He explained it to me as one of the few amphibians that never become truly amphibious, choosing to stay aquatic for the entirety of their lives, as if they prefer to never see the world outside of water, the dangers unwarranted. Spoiler alert. In Les Incendies, pure math operates as a framing device for the strange series of seemingly impossible occurrences leading to Marwan's torturer and rapist being her son and father to his own brother and sister. The triptych fails the off-white surrounding the gray lithograph of a peregrine's feather. Look up. Insert a description of the first object you see salt or sugar and water before boiling corn? Either. 
never arsenic. I don't have a truth. You don't have a truth. We have both seen unbreakable truths broken with a glance from your mother. My eldest son's second full-length feature film premiered last month. Does the, des the desire of the lover you desire an unexpected death? This is a good thing. The way the guitar in Deer Tick's 20 Miles clutters and declutters the vocals. The way the green painting of 10,000 tiny brushstrokes each dabbed on like the Chinese character for bird makes flight less difficult. I don't have time to explain. I don't have to explain time. Let me explain. The dime store guitar I bought to learn to play sits in the corner glistening with a universe of dust. Dust is composed mostly of human skin. The men who teased Dave when he'd walk by could only tolerate being ignored for so long. When next I saw him, his face was barely recognizable and the scarring never went away. And now for the hypothesis, the ingredients of what holds. Should I describe it? Do I need to? Isn't it just enough to allude to it? The orbital bone over his left eye had been shattered there were something like 100 stitches that ran from just left of his chin up the crease through both of his lips, through his left nostril, between his eyes, and into and through part of his scalp. Don't mind me. I am rewriting the book of spectacles as a periodic table of consequences. The day I discover you are Dorian Gray, I discover the children of trick questions. Something changed in him. Something departed and left a space I could feel but not identify. What left him? The edges of the wound left a hole the body can't repair. I never feel so alone as when I am home. And sometimes I remember a hayfield, now a walking path paved as a series of S's. When Bay, my youngest, told me his favorite amphibian was the axolotl. He described them as a hairless cat, if it were an amphibian, or what the skeleton of a catfish would look like if fish had exoskeletons. He said they can regenerate any part of their body, any part, and not just arms, but over time, even organs and parts of their brains. He paused, looked at me, said, even a part of their heart. A decade from then, we will make our way to Lake Chumilco in the shadows of Mexico City to find one. Oh, thanks for reading that. So it's always nice to, and people don't usually read longer poems on here, and it's nice to have an episode where we have your longer poems. And it's a tribute to Gargoyle that they'll take a, long, a poem that long, too. You really scored with a big one. <laughs> I, well, say. I wrote these scatterplot poems. Um, I <laughs> I was pretty sure they were unlikable. I was pretty sure <laughs> they were um, unreadable, and I was almost certain they were unpublishable. Um, as it turns out, at least the third part turns out to not be true. Um, all great. thirty of the the Delta poems uh, have been published. Um, though if anybody reads them and likes them, it's a whole nother question that's beyond my control. 
So. Sure. <laughs> Understood. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, David. This has been really a really most enjoyable uh, time talking to you and hearing your poetry. And Charlie, thank you for making this venue available to writers and poets. Thank you for taking the time to get the word out there for, for artists and um, that there's so many voices that need to be heard and that this is a place where those voices can get out there. Um, kudos to you and to your podcast and, and uh, amazingly, amazing gratitude. I have such gratitude for, for you and, and, and for this opportunity. Thank okay, you. thanks a lot. All right, folks, I'm Charlie Rossiter. You are, have been listening to Poetry Spoken Here with our feature, David Cohen. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>